Welcome to On San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm columnist Heather Knight, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Dominic Fracasa. We're interviewing each of the four candidates for mayor so voters have a sense of who's on the ballot on June 5th. We're starting with some serious questions about their policies and why they want to be mayor. But keep listening till the end when we get to the lightning round with some fun questions about their favorite burrito joints and where they go for a stiff drink. We're starting with Mark Leno, former supervisor, state assemblyman, and state senator, who since May 2017 has been a full-time candidate for mayor. Thank you so much for coming. It's great to have you here today. Good to be with you. So my first question is, um, Chronicle columnist and former mayor Willie Brown recently said that there's, quote, not a cigarette paper's worth of difference between the candidates on the major issues. What separates you from the other contenders? I'm among the candidates who have served on the Board of Supervisors. But in addition to that, I have served six years in the State Assembly, eight years in the State Senate, as well as having been a founder and owner and operator of a small business for the past 40 years. So different life experiences. You know, we all bring our life experiences to these jobs, and that's actually what makes it so fascinating. I always appreciated that in the legislature in particular because, you know, whether farmer or teacher or doctor or lawyer, we all bring our particular expertise and experience and offer it to public service. I had introduced the day I filed my papers on January 8th a fair campaign pledge. And in that pledge, I said that I would denounce, renounce, and reject any super PAC spending either on my behalf or against any of my opponents. You've taken um, Supervisor London Breed to task for not going along with that campaign pledge, and she has benefited from a couple of IEs so far in the campaign. But she um, says that you have benefited from those in the past. So why did you decide to change this time around? I haven't run a race since 2008, but there may have been PACs that have spent for or against me, and usually against me. And in any case, today's a new day. Let's look forward. And that's, I think, not a really sound reason not to sign a pledge. You either do believe that we should have unlimited amounts of money deciding who should be our next mayor, or you don't. And if you don't, all the other candidates except one, and that is London Breed, has signed this pledge. And beyond that, since there are two already formed to benefit her, one of them has already done a hit piece on me, it's quite easy to just say, stop, cease and desist, close that down. I don't want that benefit anymore. I want to go back a couple of years sure. uh, and shift gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you were widely rumored to be you know, considering challenging Ed Lee. How close did you get to running, and why did you end up not running, bowing out of that race. Sure. So the experience was coming back from Sacramento after the legislative year in the fall of 2014. And I was quite surprised the level of discontent, dissatisfaction I was hearing on the street because I had, you know, I I do come home on weekends as a legislator, but otherwise it was somewhat news to me and people were approaching me. Would you run against Ed Lee next year? And uh, first three, four, five, six times, I discounted it, and then it just kept happening, and I thought, well, I've really got to think about this. So I did give it some thought, and then I saw the 2014 supervisorial elections that November, and I realized I needed to make a decision by the end of that calendar year if I was going to run a serious race for November 15. And when you think about it, challenging an incumbent mayor is a revolutionary act, and I'll explain that. It is charging the castle to take out the king, and that revolutionary spirit I did not see in the air in that November supervisorial elections. In fact, only one incumbent supervisor was even challenged. 
even had an opponent. So that November of 14, status quo was pretty much the sense in the political air. It probably wasn't the time. That, that's not what San Francisco was looking for right now. And then on the other hand, you entered what we thought was going to be the 2019 race a full two and a half years early. Why did you get in so early? And how will the sped up election following Mayor Lee's untimely death change your campaign, if at all? I completed my second four-year term in the state Senate, termed out in 2016. And by the beginning of 2017, about a year ago, I had talked with those who are now my political consultants who had encouraged me to get into the race early, as they had encouraged some of their other clients, including Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris. And I saw the wisdom in that and thought, well, if I'm going to do it, why be coy about it? Why not just get to work? And then, of course, with the untimely and unfortunate passing of Ed Lee in December, our two-year marathon became overnight a then five-month, now just about three-month sprint. In some ways, it seems like the ascension of supervisor and, and board of supervisors president London Breed to the acting mayor role and her being ousted from that role kind of opened and, and closed a chapter of this mayor's race. It was a dramatic event that has lingering effects, I think it's fair to say, to this day. Did you have any advanced knowledge that any of that was going to go down the way it did um, in terms of removing London Breed from her role as acting mayor? So I was initially and consistently in support of that concept that no one, including myself, I did not lobby for myself at the Board of Supervisors. I, like anyone else with six votes, could have become interim mayor. I had four or five members of the Board of Supervisors already endorsing me, so I maybe could have twisted an elbow or two and found that six vote. But I thought, no, let's have someone specifically not on the ballot running for mayor to serve out the term of Ed Lee as interim mayor. And that's what the board decided to do. And I got wind of it just about, the, well, you probably got forewarning. I, I uh, was... When did you know they were aiming to put Mark Farrell into office? The day that it happened. You hadn't been part of any advanced no. planning? Nothing no. like that. Since then, a lot of women and African-Americans have been upset at the way that vote happened, especially putting a white man with a lot of money and a lot of tech backing into the job when the whole point the supervisor said was to remove <laughs> white wealthy men with tech interests from having so much sway at City Hall. Um, and you've kind of gotten into some disputes with the women-backed IEs that have come about after that happened and have supported London Breed. Can you talk about that and you know what you made of a wealthy white man replacing a black woman? Sure. First of all, with regard to the woman-backed super PAC, we don't know that. We do not know who's behind the super PAC. It is, we've asked that the donors be disclosed, but they are hiding it. So we don't know who is behind it. I know in name it is a woman's PAC. Now, with that said, I am, of course, very sensitive to the emotional response, and it was that. If it was a, a, a rational response, it, we would have digested it exactly as we did when a caretaker was put in place in 2011, because the circumstances are, in fact, identical. But... Issues of gender and race certainly have been very sensitive issues this season. Mark, one of the central themes of your campaign so far is about the need to shake up City Hall. And, of course, you believe that you are the candidate. Who, who's the best one to do that? Yes. Um, what specifically do you see within City Hall as in being in need of a reboot? And after a, you know, you mentioned 
all of your bona fides as, a, as an experienced politician. How do you convince voters that you're an agent of change uh, for, sure. for San Francisco City Hall? So I haven't been in city government for about 16 years. And so I will bring a fresh pair of eyes to address the very pressing problems that are in front of us right now. And in many ways, though the city is thriving with a low unemployment rate, with a lot of investment, venture capital coming into San Francisco, there are also enormous challenges. There are so many people who are hanging on just by a thread. People working two, three jobs just to pay the rent of vast number of people who are paying over 50% of their income on rent. And then, of course, the condition on the streets right now, all the human suffering that's ongoing and how it's impacting all of us. Every person who lives in town is equally, in their own way, impacted by all of the illness, all of the drug addiction, all of the mental illness on, on the streets. In a city as dense as San Francisco, we're all in this together. I also want to really focus on the budget. We now grow to a $10 billion budget, only about $5 billion, half of it is actually discretionary spending. Is there a percentage or two that we could squeeze greater efficiency out of? That would be upwards of $100 million that we could use to fight street crime and to uh, deal with all the mental illness on the streets and clean up the quality of the streets. And we could do that through a zero-based budgeting process, and that's something also that Mayor Agnos did back in the 80s. Uh, so we build the budget up from the ground, not just taking the existing budget and adding on top of it. So making sure everything, every line item is as efficient as possible. On that note, specifically, if elected, you've pledged to create a mental health justice center yes. uh, to address homelessness and suffering on our streets. So what is a mental health justice center, and how do you see it helping to break through this stubbornly persistent issue that we see on our streets every day? Mental health justice center is an idea that has been floating around for a while. And so it would provide an alternative to what we're doing right now. If someone is on the street, either in illegal fashion or just antisocial fashion, and I don't have to get into the details, uh, Heather has described them so well in so many of your columns, we know the egregious acts that are happening, and these are not people in control of themselves. They are out of control. And we have limited options. We oftentimes interaction with law enforcement. And whether by intention or otherwise, we are criminalizing or bringing into our criminal justice system those with serious health problems. That's not the place to treat mental health or addiction. And I believe more and more people basically understand that. About 50% of those in our county jail are receiving mental health services. I've told upwards of 20% are receiving psychotropic drugs because of very serious mental illness in a jail cell. No one gets better in a jail cell. So we're spending a lot of money treating people. Our greatest provider of mental health services in the county is our county jail. There's a problem there. We can do better. And clearly, we can do better. You just have to look at the streets. So we bring people into the system. They're in a county jail. We hold them for as long as we can. They're convicted of a crime. Maybe they spend more than a few days. And then we let them out without any treatment plan. They're just back on the street. Big surprise. They're going to repeat what they were doing before. They're going to come back in. It's a waste of limited resources. We've got taxpayer money. We need to focus on the most efficient uses. So the criminal... Uh, the, the, Mental Health Justice Center would be 
just that, a service provider for mental health and addiction problems. And we would use the opportunity while we have someone in custody to give that person the option of serving time in our county jail or coming into the mental health justice center and be assessed, diagnosed, and put on a treatment plan. And so we can actually deal with the problem rather than just incarcerate it. Along those lines, um, broadening out to the homeless problem in general, City Hall currently spends about $305 million a year on this problem and tons of resources and energy, and yet residents don't feel like it's getting any better when they walk around the streets. It seems a lot more in your face. There's more tent encampments. Where do you think City Hall is going wrong, and what would you do differently besides your proposal on mental health specifically? So I agree with you completely, and I hear it from people everywhere I go that the, the situation seemingly is out of control, and what are we going to do about it? A former mayor said, it's unsolvable. And so here we are so many years later, and again, one has to ask, where's the leadership been? What's been going on at City Hall that it could have gotten as bad as it is? Time for a new direction, fundamental change. We need to do things differently. So not immediately solvable, not easily solvable. If it were so, it would have been done. But we need to be doing things differently. Having read so many of your columns, Heather, and and like every San Franciscan, just seeing the state of our streets, uh, my business location is just uh, a few blocks from Market and Van Ness on a little alley. And the, the state of the, s- the streets and the sidewalks, it's, it's really, you, you swallow hard when you see it and also all the misery on the streets. So it's not working for anybody. And read the story just the other day of the $30 million that the Department of Public Works is spending annually just to clean up feces and syringes, and half of their total budget to keep the streets clean. That's their job, keep the streets clean. Sidewalks isn't supposed to be part of their task, but now that that's part of their task too. And they're just cleaning and cleaning and back six hours as was if it was never cleaned. So this is not sustainable. We've got to do something differently. We've got to get the people off the streets. So one way or the other, through our shelter system, which needs to be much more welcoming, and needs to be expanded. We've got a waiting list of over a 1,000 every night of people who want to get off the streets, and we don't have a place for them. So we've got to provide them a place to sleep, showers, toilets, navigation centers, one way or the other, get people off the streets and begin to stabilize lives, relieve the trauma that they are experiencing, the mental decomposition they're experiencing by living on the streets, and save all those who do have a home the trauma of seeing and experiencing the tents and all of the inconvenience that everybody else is experiencing. You would be the first openly gay mayor of San Francisco. How much significance would that have for you? Well, it would have significance, certainly, for me. Uh, I had the experience of being the first openly gay man elected to the California State Senate, the same experience being the first openly gay man elected to the California State Assembly. So there is that historical moment. But beyond that, I've been asked by reporters a number of times through this campaign, do I think that my sexual orientation will be an issue in this race for mayor? And I could honestly say, no, I do not think it is an issue. 
But I can tell you in the LGBTQ community, it's a big deal. It's very exciting for obvious reasons. And I have always gotten a good reception walking down Castro Street, which is not far from my neighborhood in Noe Valley, just running errands and being out. And it's, it's, it's taken on a new significance uh, since the announcement of the candidacy. People are coming out of bars and slapping me on the back and saying, this is exciting. How can I help? Well, you've survived our serious questions, and now we're going to move on to the lightning round. The tough ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, which are some quick, fun questions aimed at giving voters a little look at what you're like as a person. Our first one is, what is your favorite burrito joint in San Francisco? My favorite burrito joint? Uh, you know, I should know the name of it, but I do have one, and it's the corner of Shotwell and 24th Street. It's on the northeast corner. And boy, I'm so sorry, I can't give them a plug with their name, but the Northeast corner of Shotwell and 24th Street, great burritos. On the rare day when you have nothing to do, nothing on your plate, uh, what do you like to do? Where do you like to go? I want to get outside. So I'm a lifelong runner, and there is probably no more beautiful stretch of landscape in the United States to run than from Fort Mason to Fort Point. And it has been improved over the years. I remember when it was, much of it was asphalt and a former helicopter landing spot for the military. Now it's restored wetlands and beautiful pathways and protected areas for natural growth and beauty. And so that's uh, top of the list. What is your favorite movie set in San Francisco? Well, there's so many uh, from which to choose. And I want you to know, I do not like superlative questions, so I'm slightly resisting <laughs> your entire fire around here. But <laughs> since I'm here and since you're pushing me, and since I saw it just recently on uh, Rerun, uh, I would have to say Vertigo. And so the visit to uh, Mission Dolores, mm-hmm. the walk through the garden and the cemetery plot stones, uh, the visit to uh, the Legion of Honor, where Carlotta's portrait is hung. Of course, the very famous scene at Fort Point, where I run out to, and I think of every time. In fact, I go all the way to the end, just at the point where Kim Novak went into the water, just to pay tribute to to, uh, Vertigo. So that would be my my film. When you're showing uh, visitors around San Francisco, uh, what places do you uh, like to take them? And do you ever uh, recommend that they avoid any parts of the city when they're out on their own? I don't know that I suggest anyone that they not go anywhere in particular. I'll tell them to keep their eyes open and to be well aware of their surroundings. I also would tell them, leave absolutely nothing in your automobile. Just be safe. There's no need to attract trouble. I would take them uh, to a number of places, uh, including uh, the Presidio. Certainly show them some vistas of the water and the bay and the ocean. Uh, I would take them to the AIDS Memorial Grove in Golden Gate Park. Extraordinary place uh, with so much history to it, which uh, I could regale you with uh, longer than you would like. Uh, But it's a very remarkable, living, natural monument to those who we lost through HIV AIDS and also to all those who have survived. And so it's a, a living memory. After a long day, where do you like to go for a stiff drink? Well... That's not something I allow myself or afford myself uh, during this campaign. (laughs) I need uh, every ounce of attention I can get and need to be on my uh, best game. So uh, there's not that opportunity. In the past, 
Uh, I wouldn't mind visiting the Vizuni Cafe. Wonderful bar, copper bar. It's kind of like my Cheers bar where a lot of friendly faces and I'm well welcomed. Mark, how many years have you lived in San Francisco and what year stands out to you as one of the best? I moved here in February 1977, so 41 years ago, right about this time. It was also in the midst of a very serious drought. 76, 77 was one of uh, the worst, and I didn't know it. Uh, I had left a very cold New York City with a temperature, and, and, uh, which was having one of its worst, coldest, snowiest winters of history, and I landed in San Francisco. I only knew one friend here who was actually Marin and allowed me a sofa for the first couple of weeks before I found my apartment in the Tenderloin. And so I just thought I had come to heaven because it was sunny and mild every day. I didn't know how this is the way to experience winter, having grown up in cold Midwest winters. And what favorite year? Again, I don't like these superlative questions, but there have been any number of them, of course, uh, in my public service, being uh, elected to the Board of Supervisors being in 1998, being elected to the State Assembly 2002, State Senate 2008. But on a personal level, I would probably say when I lost my heart to a very beautiful, brilliant, loving young man, 1980. So 1980 stands out for me. We were young. Voters in June will get to rank their top three choices for mayor. Assuming they pick you first, who should they pick second and third? I'm going to have to get back to you on that one because I haven't endorsed any other candidates right now. Who will you pick second and third? I'll get back to you on that (laughs) one too. Uh, tell me about your home, Mark. Uh, do you rent or own, and uh, how long have you been there for? So I'm probably one of the rare San Franciscans to have been in town 41 years and have only two residents. I don't like to move. Uh, my business location has been the same since 1985. So I guess I'm just kind of a constant guy. And so my first home was a, bed, a one-bedroom apartment in the Tenderloin on Hyde at Geary. Very convenient because my business first opened on Geary at Masonic. So I took the 38 back and forth every day for about six years. That worked out very well. And then in 1981, I was able to buy a home in Noe Valley, and uh, that is home to this day. Assuming you win in June, picture a grand inauguration, and then what? What will be your very first act as mayor? No, I haven't thought that far down the line. So focused on every day uh, and the tasks before me. But it will be, uh, it, it will be, I have given it this much thought, unlike a traditional November election where there will be a two-month transitional period to the end of the current mayor's term and then an inauguration in January with a couple months to get things in order and to hire staff and begin to lay out uh, the immediate next steps. This won't have a transition period because we're stepping in, whoever is elected, to fill out the remaining 18 months of Ed Lee's unfinished term till the end of 2019. So there will be a deluge of things to do without the transitional period. So just the housekeeping of hiring a chief of staff and determining who's staying, who's leaving in the mayor's office, because of course, fundamental change, uh, I'm gonna be bringing in some new talent and also assessing, I'm not here to threaten anyone's job, assess uh, who's there and who should stay. But there's going to be major change, without a doubt. So those are just real housekeeping basic things. Well, thank you so much for coming today. We had a lot of fun.
not as much fun as I do. <laughs> Thank you. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is San Francisco by Goss Prom, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by Dominic Fracasa and Fernando Diaz. For more City Hall coverage, you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Fracasa and me at HNightSF. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.